you would please turn in your copies of God's Word to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. You're right there at the beginning of the book. As we take a look at a very well-known story, something you've likely seen many times in Sunday school. You're a child, many a children's illustrated coloring book has featured the Tower of Babel. But I would pray that as we look at this, that we'd be able to look at it with fresh eyes and to be able to see it for what it is, for the horror, honestly, that we'll see here, terrifying part of the Tower of Babel, but then also the hope that it points to in the future. So please join me as we look at Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Listen carefully, for this is God's word that is for you. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down in there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Father, we do thank you for this view into history, for we not only understand the how of the division of languages and nations, but the why. So help us to understand the why so that we may better serve you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard of the concept of a spite house? A spite house. These are houses that were built with the idea of cementing a grudge between you and the house that was built next to it. There were a couple of examples. These were built in the early 20th century here in America. One was there was a plot of land that was divided up between two brothers. One of them went off into military service, and the other brother, seeing the opportunity, took up far more land than was actually allotted to him to build his own house. Well, the brother, when he returned from his military service and saw he had a much thinner plot of land than he was originally given, decided to build a really skinny house right next to his brother's and be taller so it would block all the light that was coming into that house. An eternal reminder that he was slighted. 
Now, he made it such that the house was so skinny and so up close to the house, you couldn't have a front door. So you had to shimmy between the two houses and get in through a side door. There was another who was a, a city planner in 1909 in New York. They were building out this new area of the town, and they wanted a grid street to be able to keep track of all things and make traffic a little easier. He didn't like a grid pattern, so he purchased a triangular piece of land and built a house on it to force the roads to break that grid pattern. And that's something you can still see today, built nearly 100 years ago. These sorts of houses are not possible now in our world of strict building regulations, but they still stand as a testament to some anger and some pettiness and some rage. But those weren't the first. In fact, I think what we can see here in Genesis chapter 11 is the first spite house or spite tower, as we can see. The Lord had commanded the people of the earth to spread out and fill the face of the earth, just like he had told Adam and Eve originally. But here the people decide they're not going to do that. Not only are they not going to do that, they're going to build a city. So this way they can all live together so they don't have to do that. And in fact, they're so not going to do that, they're going to build a tower so that future generations will always remember we were the ones that decided to stay here. We don't care what God said. Now, building a tower to remind other people of yourself, that's a great strategy. It worked for the pyramids. We still look at them in awe. But this particular building project didn't have divine permutation. And as we're going to see, disobedience to God's commands is never a good idea. And you may get a name for yourself, but as we're going to find out here in Genesis chapter 11, you might not like the name that God gives to you. So we're going to take a look in just chapter 11. We're going to see our two points. One is that God's commandments and even judgments produce ultimate good. We're going to see that as we trace through our sermon today. And then the point number two is our broken world is moving towards reunion. And on a, on a happy note, unlike our passage, as we'll see. So, as we begin, we're going to call attention to the focus of this story, which is language. We saw last week in our journey through Genesis chapter 10 and all of those names and lists and nations, we're now finding out where did all those nations, tribes, and languages come from? Why are they all split up the way that they are? Why can't we understand each other? And we're going to see the reason comes all the way back down to Genesis chapter 11. You had to suffer through high school Spanish because of what these people did. So here is our opportunity to understand and assign blame. So here is what we begin in Genesis 11. We're told the setup is that the whole earth had one language Everyone's got the same words. We all come from the same family, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. And they're migrating like we're supposed to, and then they begin to settle in one land. And then they decide, let's, let's all stay here, and we're going to build something for ourselves. One commentator points out that we see not only their pride in building all this, but their anxieties and worries. Like, hey, let's build a tower. It'll be for future generations for us to remember us, but like, let's not spread out. 
If we have to go out into this world, like, that's scary. That means we have to trust God to provide for us. It's much easier if I can trust the people who are around me. I mean, in a survival scenario, the more people you have, the more workers you have, the easier it is to survive if you're all together, especially heading out into an unfamiliar world. So that makes sense that they would want to stay together. But it doesn't make sense when that means you don't trust God any further. We're going to see the reversal of that when we get to Abraham, when he's told to go out into the world, and he does. Unlike what these were wanting to do, that they want to stay together. But yet again, the point of this is pride. We're doing this to help build a name for ourselves because we're scaredy cats of going out into the world. Isn't that funny how pride works? We take so much pride in stuff. But when we're really down to it in the privacy of our own hearts, we're just scared people. Calvin had pointed out that the funeral should be the one thing that kills all of our pride. But even in funerals, there's pomp and circumstance. Death should help check our pride. I will one day be stopped. No matter what I produce, something is going to get me. I am weak. I can be stopped by a single stomach bug. I can't even see it. That should check my pride, but it doesn't. We also, as we'll see through this passage, we'll see how dangerous pride is. That tends to be, if you're ever in a small group, that tends to be what we tend to look at as a safe sin to confess. You know, we get to the part where it's like, all right, you know, it's time, it's time, for, it's time for accountability. And we don't want to actually confess the things we're actually really scared of. So we'll think like, well, I can throw pride out there. Everybody knows we're dealing with that. And, you know, we'll just kind of let that one slide by. It's okay. But we find out here, it's not. It's the reason why we all had Spanish high school. Is because someone, or group of people, was prideful. God doesn't take a liking to that. Because what pride ultimately is, is self-worship. Pride is looking inward to say, what can I find in myself to get glory, honor from? And what you'll find, if you look long enough, the key to pride is to not look at yourself for too long. Because if you look hard enough, you lean hard enough on yourself, it collapses. It takes a minute, but it'll collapse. So what we're going to see as we go on here, the Lord dispersing these people so they don't worship themselves is a mercy. A tower, no matter how many bricks you got in there, cannot sustain eternal expectations. That can only be God. So we continue. As we look at this language. Now, I'm going to, as we see them trying to build this tower, and the Lord decides he is going to intervene. Now, I'm going to ask you guys to walk with me here. I was a literature major in college, and there's a lot of really fun things that are happening in this passage. But there's a lot of literature, puns, and play on words here. Hold on with me. This is good stuff. But it's nerdy. So come with me into the nerdy waters of Hebrew, as we look at what God is doing here. This is about language. And the way that this chapter is written, it's 
puns and play on words all the way through. So to begin with, the word Babel is very close to the Hebrew word confusion. So you'll see that's a funny name to get in the midst of all of this. But all the way through, he keeps using words that have the letters B, L, and N in them. So as you're reading this chapter, it sounds like you're saying babble, 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 all the way through here. He's mixing these things together. We'll also see how when they get to let us make bricks, let us build a tower, you'll see the same thing when God comes down and says, let us confuse. And what's neat is the word order in let us build this tower. It's in this way. And in let us confuse, it's flipped. God is undoing all of these things that they're saying that he's doing. The place where they're going to get a name, Shem, is in this place, Sham. All of these puns that he's doing, all of this led one commentator to say that God sings with his people even as he opposes them. So we see the divine poet writing about language, using language really well to talk about how he confused language all the way through. Okay, nerdy literature over. Now let's get back to our passage. Thank you for following with me here. So he comes down and notice that. They're going to build a tower with its top in the heavens. And then we get to verse 5, and it said, The Lord came down to see the city. What does that imply? They didn't make it all the way up to the top of heaven. The Lord, in order to investigate this city, has to come down from heaven in order to be able to see the tiny little tower in the city that the children of men built. And he observes what's going on with them, and he notices that they're all one people, and they have one language. Now, you look in verse 6, the very end of it, and he says, and nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. There's a couple ways we can look at that. One has God looking a little concerned. It's like, look at all these little people. They started out with some mud, they've got bricks, they've built a tower, they've built a city. What else are they going to come up with? People will have iPhones before long. They might mess something up for me. I better confuse a language. I don't think that's what he's getting at here. Because as we can clearly tell, God pulls one move and all of it's over. So I don't think he's actually intimidated by his plans here. I think actually along that, that Calvin actually has the right approach here as he's looking at this. God is pointing out all of it hinges on one ability that he's given them. They have one language. They have all the same words. Watch. Pulls out one factor and all of their plans go to the end. I think that's what he's getting at here. He's telling us how even the biggest of our plans are just one factor away from destruction. And so that's what he does. Verse 7. Come, let us go down. And there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And then that's it. They're dispersed. They're gone. Now, we're very familiar with this story. So we don't understand how horrifying that must be. Can you imagine one day waking up and not being able to talk to any of your friends or family anymore? They don't understand you. You're speaking this, what you think are the same words you've always told them. But now they just gesture at you. And now you can't even understand what they're saying to you. 
in the midst of what they were fearing, we can be together, we can stay close, and all of a sudden, it's fractured. I think what we're seeing here is a further playing out of the Genesis curse. Here in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, they're migrating together, walking with each other in the cool of the day, if we can phrase it that way. And now all of a sudden, there's a new wall that's been put up. In Genesis chapter 3, it was a wall put up between humanity and God. They had sinned. So now their relationship with God was cut off. And now they're being cut off even from each other. Now humanity can't communicate. Got these small groups of people that only speak. It's like, we're, we're, this is it. We've been cut off from the rest of the world. We freak out when the internet goes down. Can't communicate with anybody. Just like this on a, on a, a scale you can't troubleshoot. This is horrifying. And you'll notice, as one commentator pointed out, there's no blessing that follows. One of my old Hebrew professors put it this way. There is no clothing for the naked sinner. No protective mark for the fugitive. No rainbow in the dark sky. The primeval age ends with judgmental scattering and complete confusion. The blessing is not here. The world must await the new history. And that's where we leave off in Genesis chapter 11. The nations are scattered. The tower was unbuilt. And so the name of it was confusion. Here they were seeking a name for themselves to be remembered for all ages. And they got their wish. And they're being remembered as the confused generation. And that's where we leave off. Now, if you remember, my first point here is that God's commandments and judgments produce ultimate good. Where is that? It doesn't seem to be here in Genesis chapter 11, but that's not where the Bible ends. We've got to keep going. And what we'll find is that the broken world is moving towards reunion. So let's see how the Lord's going to do that. There is a new history that is coming. And it's actually announced in one of the prophets, we probably don't read enough, but we should, is in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Here's what it says. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, The daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. Did you catch that? Do you remember from chapter 10? Where did the Cush people come from? What son were they from? It was from Ham. The cursed people. God's going to call them back. I'm going to undo this curse, and I'm going to give them holy speech. Now, we don't get that promise until hundreds of years after what we see here in Genesis chapter 11, but that's the beginning of the unfolding of this plan that he has for them. And then as we go on, we don't see this play out in a blessing until we get to Acts chapter 2. 
in Acts chapter 2, we get Pentecost. And what happens to all of the apostles when they go out preaching? Everybody hears the gospel in their own language, don't they? That's what we hear in verses 9 through 11, Genesis chapter 2. Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Remember that geography lesson we all talked about? Where is Libya? Northern Africa. Where did all those folks come from? Those are the descendants of Canaan. It was Egypt. And Asia and Arabia and Mesopotamia. All these areas are where all the nations have been spread and they're all together to hear the gospel. And what they're hearing is draw near instead of go away. Disperse. They're hearing, come, join me, get close to me. And they're hearing it all in their own languages in Acts chapter 2. And what's amazing, as we get on to Acts chapter 10, we get the fact that there are multiple languages, and God instead turns this to show that because people speak different languages, that's the proof that, they, that the Gentiles are included in the new covenant. So again, really quick here, had Jews and everybody else. And here in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit visits upon the Jewish people, they're able to speak all these languages that they've never studied before. And they can actually be understood by these other people. And now they're hearing, hey, you know what? The Gentiles are going to be a part of this new covenant. What? We've not heard that for thousands of years. They had in Isaiah. They weren't paying attention. But they're like, all right, well, how do we know that the Gentiles are supposed to be a part of this? It's like, well, when the Gentiles hear of the gospel, guess what they're going to do? The same thing you've been doing. They're going to speak in all these different languages that they haven't studied before. So the very fact that there are multiple languages and the very fact that they're really hard and the very fact that it takes years to study all of these things That's the very sign that God's going to use to say, these people are welcome. All the way from Genesis chapter 11. So we didn't see that there was blessing there in that judgment. It just looked like we just split everybody up and we're never going to revisit that again. But here, the very fact that there are different languages now proves that the people can come back together. Now, what are those people going to do. Well, that's what we read in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Now, in Christ, the Jews and the Gentiles are going to be brought together. And in verse 21, what are we building? Is it another tower to ourselves? No. It's a temple. For the dwelling place of God. That's the plan. These nations in rebellion got all split up. 
And now they're going to be united, not by a common tongue, not by a common culture, but by a common Christ. And is going to build them together for a temple to himself. Now that's a great place to end, isn't it? But it goes on. In Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation 21, when everything comes to an end, we get to see the nations one more time. Revelation 21, last book of the Bible. Next to last chapter of the Bible. Chapter 21, 22 through 26. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you see what was there in 26? There's going to be a distinct honor that these nations are going to bring in. What that looks like, I'm looking forward to it. But by virtue of the fact that they've been split up, the Lord is going to bring them back together and it's going to be a more rich mosaic than it ever would have been before. And all are going to be united in heaven from every language, tribe, and tongue. Together and fulfilling what we saw in Zephaniah. Speaking one pure speech. That's where it's going. And that's why I pray for nations that are at war. Because I already have the answer to that prayer here in Revelation chapter 21. There are going to be people from the Gaza Strip, from Ukraine, from Russia, from Arabia, Israel are all going to be brought together and will sing the same song over their Savior. That is what's coming. We got to hold on to that, people. The world looks like it's just flying apart. In many ways, it is. That's what it looked like to them in Genesis chapter 11. There is no hope here. But that's precisely what the Lord wants us to see so that we'll look to him and we'll realize there is no policy There is no translator that pulls all this together. It's Jesus. Even with all the wonders of modern technology, we still haven't managed to figure out how to communicate even basic things fully to one another. Remember, Abby and I were out of the country one time, and we had to use three different devices in two different languages to try to tell the shopkeeper that we left our bag behind. It wasn't until finally he realized we were trying to say the word sack, and he finally realized this is what we were getting after. It took us 15 minutes to get there. The barrier is real. But the tearing down of that wall is coming. That's what we look to. So what do we do about it now? Do we just say, well, Revelation's coming. We'll just wait till then. Until then, we'll just stay at each other's throats until the Lord forces us to be unified. But we can do better than that. It actually comes from this table. 
We have the opportunity to live out what we've just seen in Ephesians chapter 2. And what we will experience in heaven, we can get a literal taste of it here at the table as a family. And in fact, we'll see that in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, talking about the Lord's Supper. Paul says this, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. That's what this table is a symbol of. It's a unity of each other. Not in our language, not in our culture, not in our age, but in our Savior. So where do we go from here? One is to practice unity around the truth of God's word. We can make two mistakes. We can sacrifice truth in order to be unified. And that's what we saw in the Tower of Babel. They were united around disobedience. They got a lot done, but the Lord knocked it over. And so is the same for all of our efforts. We can get a lot done. We can, get, we can be really unified if we kick truth to the curb. But it's going to end a disaster every single time. It's been that way since the literal beginning. So don't do that. Strive to know the truth and be united around that. And that's a foundation that will never be undone. Strive for unity. Built around the truth. But it is striving. We're sinners. We don't get along. But we can in Christ. And then number two. First was practice unity around the truth of God's word. Number two is love the church. This, what we're doing right now, is weekly heaven practice. We take our kids to soccer practice because we know there's a game coming. So we're walking through the motions of what it's like to play a soccer game. And here, we're walking through the motions of what it's like going to be in heaven. Now, it's not going to be one eternal sermon. Don't hear that. Or sitting in one place for all of eternity. It's not my point. It's being gathered together. But in heaven, we won't have the limitations of our physical bodies that get so tired. We won't have the limitations of our sin that cast daggers across the aisles. We'll be perfectly perfect, perfectly unified, perfectly remade. And inasmuch as we can get a small taste of that while we're here, helps prepare us for the joy that is coming. Let me close with one final quote, borrowing from Calvin one last time. And this is be really important, especially as we head into our missions weekend next week. I want you to think about this. He says, although their language may differ in sound, they all speak the same thing while they cry, Abba, Father. When the nations call out to Christ, even if that makes a different sound and different syllables than what that sounds like for us, we're all saying the same thing. When we reach out to Christ and say, I can't do it. I'm selfish. I don't want to be united to these people. We reach out to Christ and he says, well, then I will transform you. So if that's never happened for you, if you've been eternally at war with someone, here's your chance to lay down your arms. A chance to come to Jesus, see him dying on a cross for that sin, and that's what it is, and being raised to new life to show you one day 
the Lord will solve all of these barriers that we have. If that's not been true for you, I pray that you'd come, come to me. Let me tell you more. But even from your seat, to be able to call out to Jesus in faith and saying, Lord, I can't do this. I need you to change me. And may this be the day for your salvation, for your beginning of the reunion of humanity. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for providing for us the source of our unification. Lord, though we sin against you and against each other so often, I pray that you would help us to see more and more yourself, that we might be able to behold you and in that joy go out and be united to others. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.